This morning we're in Jeremiah 45, and I think our, our first inclination might be to sometimes perhaps skip over a chapter like this. Skip over uh, a chapter such as this one, because it's, it's so short, it's, it's so brief, it's somewhat obscure. It doesn't leave a lot for us to sort of really sink our teeth into. Especially, you know, if you're reading a, 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 an Our Daily Bread or something like that, you're just quickly going through your morning devotions. If you try to go through this chapter, quickly, there's not a lot of sort of footholds or, or handholds for you to really grab onto something. Actually, this particular text requires us to do a lot of digging, a lot of examining of other texts, of history, and so, so on and so forth, to really get our minds around what's going on. It's interesting, I think, that this shortest of all of Jeremiah's chapters within his prophecy is directed to a specific person. Not to the kingdom of Judah, not to a king specifically. Actually, to his very own assistant. His assistant is this man named Baruch. He was a copyist, so to speak, a transcriber. If Jeremiah was giving a word to be declared to someone or to be sent to someone, Baruch was the one who was writing it down. He was the one who was taking Jeremiah's words and putting them on parchment, so to speak. That's what his job was. And there's several occasions, and in fact, one we're going to look at even this morning in a little bit, that where this occurs. Having such proximity to Jeremiah, the prophet of Yahweh, you would think that Baruch would be bolstered in his faith to withstand very grievous circumstances. But as we have seen here... Already in verse 3, as it sort of clarifies, Baruch has fallen on hard times. This is sort of God giving to Jeremiah the quote that Baruch gives. So this is really Baruch's vexation. This is his confession. And notice what he says. This is Baruch sort of testifying, woe is me. For the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. It's basically, he's saying, God has added insult to injury. (laughs) And I am weary with my groaning and I find no rest. Baruch is in a very difficult spot. Essentially, if we were to diagnose him, he has a form of depression, we could say. Things are going on in his life to where this is all he can see. Woe is me. It's an expression of grief, of just exclamatory phrase of just, I am at my lowest, I am at my worst. Woe is me, God. It seems as though you keep adding insult to injury and I'm getting no rest, no relief. I am exhausted. And I think it begs us to ask a couple questions, and that's what I want to focus on this morning, is what was going on in those days to make the assistance to the prophet Jeremiah feel this way, and why was it enough to warrant a very specific address? It's not a king, it's not a, a kingdom, it's a person. Who gets a prophetic address from a prophet of Yahweh. There's something significant going on I think. Here in this brief little chapter. And that's why I wanted to tell you this morning. What I've entitled the Ballad of Baruch. Through which I think we're going to see just how you and I. But especially this one who is close to a prophet of the Lord. Close to a preacher we could say. Receives a word that's brimming with comfort. And grace. 
and truth that relieves weary souls. And at first it may not sound that way or feel that way, but it actually that's exactly what this text is. It's a ballad to this one named Baruch that's, that's giving him comfort and relief and rest. I think we're obliged to know a little bit about the circumstances that is precipitating this chapter. And verse 1 is our clue. Notice verse 1 again as it says, The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, as always... These Old Testament passages are filled with proper names that can sometimes make us glaze over. Because there's so many proper names being thrown at us at once. The only names I want you to focus on are Baruch and Jehoiakim. Because Baruch is, of course, the assistant to Jeremiah. And this is happening as he's here noting in the fourth year of the king of Judah, this man named Jehoiakim. And the key phrase there is the phrase when it says, when Baruch wrote these words in a book. It's a reference actually to a chapter, a couple chapters previously, chapter number 36. Actually go there because I want to take some time to set the scene. Because this is the setting. It might strike you odd to know that Jeremiah is not a book that's laid out in chronological order. Actually, chapter 45 is the chronological sequel to chapter 36. They are most closely associated with each other. And in fact, you can look at chronological diagrams of this book. And actually, it's a, it's a collection of a bunch of different writings that Jeremiah proclaimed and had dictated at a bunch of different times throughout a bunch of different kings that he was prophesying to. Here, though, in chapter 36, notice verse number 1. A key phrase, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. The same, same time frame as chapter 45, verse 1. Notice it says, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So Jeremiah the prophet is receiving another prophecy from Yahweh. He's receiving it in this fourth year that Jehoiakim is on the throne. And he receives these instructions. Notice what, they say, what God tells him to do. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you and from the days of Josiah until today. Basically, collect all of your sermons, collect all of your messages and put them in a book and send it to the king because I want him to read these words. I want him to see Exactly the message that I have for him. And at this point, I would imagine Josiah, or excuse me, Jeremiah would be raising some eyebrows at this type of instruction. As we, you might know, Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. And it's not just because his message was sometimes seen as, seen as dour or depressing. It was also because his message was so ill received. No one wanted to listen to it. By this time, Jeremiah had stacks of messages that had just fallen on deaf ears. No one wanted to hear the words he had to say. No one wanted to respond to this call of Yahweh to repent. Because you see, this amazing text is that, yes, God wants to get the people of Judah's attention. And not to make them more hurt, not to make them more sorrowful. Notice verse 3. Why does he want to do this? 
It may be this is God's heart being expressed. It may be that the house, uh, or the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. God's heart is to forgive his people and he's giving them another opportunity. Judgment is coming, but there is mercy There is grace, there is forgiveness, there is an opportunity, there is a window for you, my people, to turn. I love the fact that all throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we've talked about this before. The Old Testament God is this grumpy old grouchy God who wants everyone to get off his lawn. Except that's not always true. Because he's a God that wants people to draw to him. He wants people to come close. Even the people of Judah. If you remember as we studied through Kings. How many times did the people of God turn away? They say they repented and then they turn away. They say they've changed and they keep turning away. They keep turning away. They keep going back to idols. They keep going back to false gods. They keep going back to iniquity. They keep going back to things that's not going to fill them. And here again, God is giving them another opportunity. Turn and you have forgiveness. He's giving them that assurance. That's the message that he wants to bring before them one more time. So Jeremiah obeys, even though, at least in the back of my mind, if I were Jeremiah and I was prophesying and preaching for so long and not seeing any change at all, I would think, why would this work now? But he obeys. He brings Baruch, notice verse 4, then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. He gets all of his pens and all of his paper, he gets all of this ink, and he starts writing, starts writing all of these prophecies, these messages, these sermons that Jeremiah had delivered. And I feel bad for Baruch, because he comes to the office just thinking, another day, another time of dictation, But this particular time, he gets way more than he bargained for. Notice verse number 5. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. So you are to go. And on a day of fasting and the hearing of all the people of the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. And may be... That their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. So he goes from just being a copyist to now he's actually a messenger. He's the one who's actually having to deliver these words before the people. Sort of a raw deal if you look at it from Baruch's perspective. I'm just a penman. My focus is calligraphy, not on bringing a message before people. I'm not, I'm not a communicator. And Jeremiah says, no, this is what God has called you to do in this particular moment. This is your calling. I can't go, but you can. And the words of the Lord need to get out. And I just imagine Brooke receiving this instruction with one of those deer in the headlight sort of stares. <laughs> At this ominous task he's just been tasked with, bringing words of judgment. Yes, judgment and mercy, but the people of the Lord would probably mostly see judgment. Because that's where their hearts are. Bringing them before all of the people of Judah. He's daunted at this task. And yet he does it anyway. 
Notice verse 8. And Baruch the son of Uriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the house of the Lord. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Germiah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. So he begins reading in a very public square with all these people that are coming to observe this fast. So it's a crowded spot, a spot where there's lots of commotion, lots of people. And before that entire multitude, the timid little Baruch starts reading. He starts reading the words that Jeremiah had dictated him. Words of prophecy. Words of coming judgment. But yes, also words of available mercy. And it causes an uproar. You can read, but I'll just try and summarize it just for the sake of time. In the next several verses, what happens is this. Baruch is reading. There's a man by the name of Micaiah, and he's there, and he starts hearing these words, and alarm bells are ringing off in his head. So he hurriedly rushes back to the king's secretary's office. And there he, out of breath, he's, you can, I just picture the scene, he's hearing this word, he's heard this message being read, and he runs back to the office, and he says, you will never guess what's going on in the town square. You will never guess what's being told. Another prophecy from that old haggard prophet Jeremiah is being read in the town square, and has a lot of words that the king is not going to like. So the the king's secretary, he gathers a bunch of men and they go and they summon Baruch to come back to his office and to make sure that what this messenger has told them is true. To make sure that this message that's being circulated, that's being rumored about, is actually the one that's being spoken of that day. So Baruch quickly is summoned and he's made to rehearse his message but again. And as he does, notice what happens. Look at verse 15. And they said to him, that is, they said to Baruch, sit down and read it. Read the book that you have transcribed. And so Baruch read it to them. And when they heard it, notice what happens. All the words, they turned one to another in fear. A look of panic shrieks across their faces. They're worried. (laughs) They are alarmed by the words that have just been spoken, that have just been read. And I think it's a sign, of course, that these words are powerful words. They're not just words that come from a book that you and I would read off the shelf. They are words that come from God. These are words are powerful, and they're powerful because they're Yahweh's. (laughs) And you can see it right in the expression that streaks across the faces of these men. These men of high-ranking power and court standing in the kingdom of Judah. And yet they are turned into timid little scaredy cats because this messenger has just read these words. They're fearful. And they quickly act. They give Baruch a little bit of a warning. Hey, you better go hide yourself because the king's not going to like this. You better go into hiding Because when the king finds out, and we have to tell him, because we are his secretaries, his aides, we have to tell him what we've just found, but you should go into hiding. (laughs) So that's what happens. Baruch runs away. The scroll is 
taken to the king. This book that was dictated with all of these messages from Jeremiah. And they come to the king who at the time is vacationing in his winter cabin. And he's sitting by a fire. Which is an important detail. Notice verse number 20. So they went to the court to the king. And having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary. And they reported all the words to the king. And then the king sent Jehudi to get, to, to get the scroll. And he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house. And there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And so this, this one starts reading, starts reading the words of Jeremiah for the king. And what does he do? Does he respond in a way that brings Judah to repentance, that brings Judah to a wholesale revival? And this is the amazing moment that Jeremiah so longed for and that Baruch so sought after. Nope, not at all. In fact, the exact opposite occurs. The king takes out a little pocket knife and he starts cutting that book to shreds. Notice, as Jehudi, verse 23, read three or four columns... The king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Rather than listen to any of the words that Jeremiah might have had to offer to him, any words that might have led to change and revival and repentance, led to anything that might lead to a great everlasting change in the people of Judah, what does he do? He tries to get rid of them. He starts cutting up the book, starts cutting up all the paper and throwing it into the fire pot as if burning the paper would make Jeremiah's words any less true. It's a silly notion. But that's essentially what he's trying to do. If I can just burn these words and get rid of them, then they aren't really true. It's, it's silly. And he's so defiant. He's heartlessly throwing these words, the words that could lead to his and his people's salvation. He's throwing them and turning them into ash. And he has no remorse. Look at verse 24. No remorse while doing this. And it says, Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid. They were calloused towards the words. And they did not tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Delilah and Germiah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. He's resistant towards any sort of offering of wisdom or counsel to urge him to stop. King, think before you keep doing this. These are words that don't just come from a prophet. They come from a prophet of Yahweh. They carry weight. They carry meaning. They carry significance. And he's burning them. He resists any sort of advice. He disregards it. As it says, they're not tearing their garments. He wasn't showing any sign of confession or contrition or remorse. And in fact, what does he do? He calls for Jeremiah and Baruch to be seized and killed. I would rather get rid of this prophet for good than to listen to anything he has to say. And again, as we noted, this king is Jehoiakim. If you want to know about Jehoiakim, I would suggest you read 2 Kings 23. If you remember, we preached about that several months ago. But it's interesting to notice this king and how he came to power. He wasn't a very good king. He came to power thanks to Egypt overrunning the kingdom of 
Judah. He was put there sort of as a puppet king. And then later, uh, Judah came under Babylonian rule thanks to Nebuchadnezzar defeating the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish. A little bit of history. And then Jehoiakim makes the really stupid decision that he wants to rebel against Babylon. (laughs) Not a very wise move on his part. And while all of that was going on, him becoming the puppet king of Egypt and then the puppet king of Babylon, all these things were going on. Judah continuing to decline and to further and further ruin. Who is the little bug in his ear? It's Jeremiah. While all of that is going on, at the close of the book of 2 Kings, Jeremiah is preaching and urging and yearning for the people of God to wake up, to listen. You know, rather than humble himself at this declaration of judgment and of mercy, he would rather hold on to his pride. He would rather give in to his hubris, which did nothing but plunge the people of God into further ruin. This king is so defiant, so resistant towards the fact that he needs to listen, that he needs help. And I think it's interesting to me, That this action of burning God's words is actually still continuing in our own day. I think actually there are hordes of folks who continue to turn the words of God to ash. Maybe not perhaps literally, but they do so in their hearts. They turn a deaf ear and a hard heart to the truth of God's message. They resist Listening to the message that could lead to their deliverance. Remember, as we noted before, Jeremiah's message was not all doom and gloom. It was the fact that this God, there is a judgment coming, but there's a way out. There's a way of escape. And yes, it is God's heart that Judah would be brought to their knees. He wants this King Jehoiakim to be brought to his knees, to be humbled, so that he might lift him up again. And it is only Jehoiakim's defiance and his resistance towards the idea that he needs divine help that brings about the disaster that continues to usher the people of Judah headlong into ruin. He refuses to hear these words of Jeremiah and more than just refuses them, he rejects them. He pays them no mind at all. I would say, unfortunately, God's truth continues to receive the same sort of response. Folks refuse to hear this word because they think it means something. They, they have preconceived notions about what the scriptures say, about who the God of the Bible is. They don't heed the words that contain their salvation and their deliverance. And there's nothing more devastating to me than to hear about folks resisting to hear the scriptures because of something someone else said. <laughs> Or something they saw somewhere on social media or something like that. And no, I don't want anything to do with church. Anything to do with those Christian folk. Because of what we've uh, heard or, or seen about them. It's sad because these words are true. And they're the words of deliverance. They're the words of relief. They're the words of forgiveness. That's very apparent and very devastating I think when the ungodly... Turn away from the scriptures. But I often think too that we're just as guilty. We in the church I think are just as guilty as so to speak burning the words of God. Than we would ever let ourselves believe or care to admit. 
And though we don't perhaps literally cut the words of God out or burn the words, the pages of the Bible, that is essentially what you're doing when you try to pick and choose which parts of the Bible you're going to listen to and which parts you're not. You're essentially doing the same thing that Jehoiakim does. I like this part, but I'm not going to do that part. <laughs> Have you ever heard the story of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? Fascinating little story. This man who was at the head of sort of, we could say, the founding of this country. Thomas Jefferson, he has this famous Bible, you can look it up, where he took the words of Scripture and cut and pasted and glued and got rid of everything miraculous. All of the miracles of Christ, all of the evidences that Jesus was the Son of God, all of those notions of deity in the Son. And he turned it into what? He was trying to make the Bible more palatable, perhaps more understandable. But you know what he actually did? He made it impossible to actually live up to. Because if you take the idea that Jesus is the Son of God out of it, all of the book of, the, book of the Bible turns into is a book of morals. And essentially that's what he did. Thomas Jefferson turned the Bible of God's salvation of sinners into a book of morals that we have to live up to or else... By trying to make it more palatable, he made it impossible. He was resisting the words of God, resisting the truth, much like Jehoiakim saying, I don't like this, cut it out, burn it. You can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible you like and then just disregard the rest. It's all necessary. The Bible is not a have it your way sort of deal. This is the revelation of God. All of it is necessary for us to understand who this God is. This God of, yes, fierce judgment, but also of God that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the same God. And to understand who he is, we need all of the scriptures. We need it all. And I would say, just like Baruch, we're faced with a a very similar daunting task. You and I in the church were faced with the same sort of assignment to declare a particularly hard message at times to hard-hearted folk, who, people who would rather not listen to what we have to say. And yes, we are not at liberty to change the message to make it easier for our audience to swallow. That is going on in a lot of a lot of congregations, a lot of pockets of Christianity in this day and age. Change the message. Let's make it easier for people to hear. Easier for people to understand. That's not our errand. That's not our calling. That's not our task. Baruch's task wasn't to change the words that Jeremiah had dictated to them. To make it more palatable for the people of Judah to hear and understand and swallow. His message, his calling was to declare the same words that Jeremiah dictated to him. And I would say the same is true for us in the church. These are the words we've been commissioned to declare, to live out. And the message is simple. Yes, Judgment is coming and people love to harp on that. But the great through line of the Bible is that God has divinely offered a way of escape out of judgment. He's offered his own son as the way in which you and I and everyone in the world can be taken out of that full, full brunt force judgment that's coming into this world. It's the story of how he's delivered sinners from condemnation. That's what he comes to declare. And that's what we have to declare as well. 
Whether that message is received or not, that message is true. It's because it's Yahweh's message. Perhaps it's a little easier now to see why Baruch is so down. His valiant stand for truth, this commission that he receives from Jeremiah to go and read these words, declare them, it literally goes up in flames. He sees them burned in front of him. And maybe we can better sympathize with his depressive state. Now that we understand what he went through, remember in chapter 45, what does it say? Chapter 45, verse 3. He says, woe is me. For the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and I find no rest. He's put himself on the line. He's put his life in jeopardy. And he sees this mentor, his mentor's book go up in smoke. And I think it was a sure sign, at least for him, that that was about to be him. That was about to be him. He was a wanted man now. He was already the assistant to the weeping prophet. He was already the disciple of the preacher with the most depressing sermons. At least it felt that way. And now he has a price on his head. No wonder he says, woe is me. I sympathize with poor old Baruch here. As he says, I am weary. I'm exhausted. I am so loaded down by the weight of what we're called to do. And what was their calling? What was he and Jeremiah's calling? It was simple to speak the truth in an era and to a people who didn't want anything to do with the truth. Maybe that sounds similar or familiar. But he's understandably, I think, dejected here. He served the Lord for several years at this point faithfully alongside the the prophet Jeremiah only for that service to be constantly rejected and refused and dismissed and disregarded at every single turn. And this barrage of rejection and ridicule and mockery now has him on the fritz. He's on the verge of giving up, of waving the white flag and saying, I'm done. I'm turning in. I'm turning in all any sort of, you know, papers that make me your assistant. I'm done. I'm almost, I'm over it. That's sort of what verse five seems to indicate as God calls Baruch out for seeking great things for himself. Notice he asks him the question. Do you seek great things for yourself? It might have been easier for Baruch to to do that, to pursue that, to live an easier life, a less stressful life. A life that doesn't have as much heartache, that doesn't have as much weight on you. It's generally believed that Baruch and his family had some sort of standing, had some sort of prominence in the kingdom of Judah in those days, which very well means that he could have left this life of toiling alongside this prophet, of laboring beside Jeremiah for the truth. He could have left that and gone after some other thing, some other occupation that could have given him standing, that could have given him financial security, that could have given him emotional stability. It's a very viable option. And I think the point is here. He's on the verge of doing that. And wouldn't you? After you've just seen what happens when this very public display of refusal and denial of the truth is laid down. You can imagine Baruch sort of 
thinking in his mind, why am, I, why am I doing this? Why am I toiling about with this truth thing after wave of defiance keeps coming at me? Why am I continuing to do this? Where now I'm dismissed and I'm outcast and I'm rejected. God, why did you call me to this? I didn't sign up for this. Maybe you've had similar thoughts. Brooke's faithfulness to the truth didn't earn him any ounce of respect. Didn't earn him anything amongst his peers. Only rejection. And it left him, as he says, I am weary. I am tired. I find no rest. I'm exhausted. I am spent. There is no more gas left in the gas tank. I can't go on. And as he contemplates giving up, as he contemplates surrendering everything and giving up in this life of serving Jehovah God, Jehovah God gives him this message. That's what chapter 45 is all about. It's this message to a weary prophet's assistant. And I think what's so fascinating is that you and I might expect and we might want a message of comfort, a message of ease. I'm weary, God. Make me feel better. Make me feel lighter. And what is God's words to him? Notice verse 4. Thus you shall say to him. So God is telling Jeremiah what to say to Baruch. Thus says the Lord. Behold, What I have built, I am breaking down. And what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. God actually informs him that things are actually going to get a little bit worse before they get better. In fact, as he says in verse number 5, what does he say? For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh. This Time of turmoil is coming. So essentially God comes to this weary prophet's assistant. And what does he say? He doesn't coddle him with cozy words that might make him feel better. God essentially says, my summary of verses 4 and 5 is, you better buckle up, Brooke. You better buckle up. Because this disaster that's coming is coming by my hand. And and this is the amazing thing that we see within this text here. That Yahweh is telling him. I'm allowing this to occur. This disaster that feels so imminent. With all of these invasions. These territories coming down. The people of Judah on the brink of exile. On the brink of being taken out of their homes. That disaster that's just on their doorstep, God was allowing. This was part of something that he was doing, that he was performing. This was all, I would say, part of this determination that God had to sort of, we could say, till the grounds of Israel's hearts for this new work that he wanted to do. As he here makes clear that what I've built, I'm going to break down. And what I've planted, I'm going to uproot. God here sort of takes on the image, we could say, of a farmer preparing his field for a new season of sowing and growing, we could say. And for that to occur, you can't just plant new seed on old fallow ground that's been hardened. It has to be worked. It has to be turned over. It has to be disrupted. It has to be loosened up for anything to be planted. 
And in effect, that's what God is telling Baruch, that this is exactly what's going on in your day. All of that old, fallow, hardened ground of Israelite unbelief and and disobedience that's all being tilled and reworked to make way for something new. And what is that something new? Go with me to chapter 31. This is awesome. Jeremiah 31, notice, notice, notice this. Jeremiah 31, look at verse 27. God saying this to Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow and to destroy and to bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Look at verse 38. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner or the, for, to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill of Gareb and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the book, brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. This is what God is getting ready to do. It's a season of newness, a season of building, a season of growing. And for that to occur, all the other stuff has to happen first. The breaking up, the plucking up. But as he says, that's going to be no more soon. As he says, I'm going to do that. And then one day I'm going to put down sort of the till work and start growing. It can be hard to be in those sorts of seasons. You can imagine Baruch sitting here hearing these words, hearing God go on about how he's going to break down and tear up and all those sorts of things. And all of those images are in his mind, causing him to fear, causing him to want to give up. Can I be really real with you for a second? I think we are in an exactly similar season right now. I think what is happening in the church, not just this church, but churches all over this country is is very similar to a season of God breaking down and plucking up. And I think it can feel as if the uprooting hand of God is very heavily upon us. That is if God the gardener has descended. And I think, I, no, I'm not I think, I know, there are churches across this country that could say exactly the same thing. And in fact, I can think of at least six churches just within central Pennsylvania alone that have gone through a grueling season of pruning and uprooting just within the last year. And I think there's two ways of looking at that. Either you could say, number one, Satan's getting a foothold. You can look at that. You can see the evidence. This church is dividing. This church is arguing. This church is having problems. Oh, look, at, look at what happened there. Can you believe what happened? Either you can say, Satan's getting a foothold. Satan's winning. Look at how the devil, the prince of the power of the air, is getting a foothold in God's people. You could look at it that way. Or you could look at it as if God is preparing his church for something new. That he's breaking down and he's plucking up in order to replant, to reroot, and to make new again. 
I think God here in this chapter, this message to Baruch gives us the perspective that we ought to have when we see seasons of uprooting and things happening within our families, within our friends, within people we hear about. And we hear what God is doing and it can feel as if there's this horrible perspective that we can have. Look at what God is doing. How can God allow this? How can Satan be getting a foothold? And actually God is telling Baruch to this little assistant, this is Part of what I'm doing. This is part of the program, so to speak. This apparent disaster, this work that he's performing, this work that the gardener's doing to the ground is not to the ground's detriment, it's to prepare it for something new, for some sort of new growth. The apparent disaster that we see at work sometimes gives way to the hopeful message that God's the one bringing it about. I keep going back. My favorite chapter. If, if, just aside, this is, not, this is free. Um, when I went through the, book of, the books of First and Second Kings, my favorite chapter out of all those chapters is First Kings 12. And I just put the little phrase and I just remember, I'm not going to preach 1 Kings 12 for the sake of time, but I could because I, I really like that chapter. 1 Kings 12 is the chapter that occurs after Solomon dies and the kingdom of Israel falls into disarray. That kingdom that was under David that was so high and glorious and under Solomon that was so magnificent, it falls into ruin and it divides. Solomon's son makes a really Really, really unwise decision. And the other people and the other tribes, they lead this uprising, they lead this revolt, and the, and the, the kingdom of Israel divides. And if you remember in the room, Solomon's son, his name is Rehoboam. He and his men, they are in their room after this, this great revolt has occurred. And they're thinking and they're, they're talking amongst themselves. We need to go back at them. We need to get back what's ours. We need to reclaim, make those tribes listen to us. Make sure that the kingdom of God stays with its appointed man. And then a prophet comes into the room. He comes into this room where all this talk about, let's go back, let's lead a counterattack, lead a counteroffensive, let's get what's ours. And this prophet comes in and says what? This thing is from me. Words that shoot across that room and it silences everyone. Because the prophet has just revealed that this moment of disaster, this moment of division was actually from Yahweh. And though it didn't make any sense in that time period, I can imagine everyone in that room being like, what are you talking about? And the prophet stood there and declared the words of the Lord. That is to say, there is a purpose that's being affected through something that appears purposeless. It appears chaotic. It appears disruptive. And yet, what is the hope of the word of God that gives us that there is a purpose in it that is deeper and truer than anything that you or I could ever perceive? And that, move, that moment proves true throughout all of the people of Israel. And the moment proves true for Baruch as well. And the moment proves true for you and I as well. Do not give up. Do not surrender to dejection. Don't quit and seek out great things for yourself. Why? Why is that true? Because God is doing a new thing. And God basically tells him in verse 5, I'm going to give you a front row seat to the whole thing. Notice verse 5 as he says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. 
For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I, I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. Despite all the disaster, the distress, the the commotion, Baruch was going to be safeguarded. He was going to be spared. He was going to be delivered out of it all. That he might be a witness to the great work that God was going to bring about. Therefore, he could take heart. Even though he was denied, even though he was defied, even though he's dejected, even though he's dismissed, God has his eye on him. And he says, trust my word, because what I'm doing, though it might appear disastrous, it is bringing about a purpose that is greater than even you. And you are a witness to it. And I would say the same thing is for you and for me, right here, where we are. Though we might be denied, though we might be defied, though we might be dejected, though we might be dismissed, though we might be disrespected. God's eyes is on those who hold fast and cling to the truth of God's word. Who know for certain that there's a deeper, greater, truer, more blessed purpose that he's bringing about. That maybe perhaps you and I can't see, but he's bringing about because he's the gardener. He's the one tilling and planting and nurturing and allowing the growth. Instead of seeking great things for ourselves, just like us Baruch was charged, we are charged to seek them not. And we could probably, we could just insert, we could say, seek them not, but seek after me. That's what God is calling Baruch. Seek after me. It's Colossians 3.2, all over again. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on there on the earth. That's the same warning for us. The same admonition, the same charge. Don't seek great things for yourself. Set your mind on the things of God, on the things of his truth, on the things of his word. For the moment, maybe all you see are the evidences of God's uprooting work. You can see it. It's very apparent. It's very palpable. It's like blinders on a mule that get them to go where they're going. All they can see is this. And it can feel sometimes when we're in seasons of suffering and sorrow and heartache that it's almost like blinders. And all we can see is that. All we can see is the disaster. All we can see is the uprooting work. And sometimes God has to do something to really take those blinders off to get us to see that there's a bigger work going on. Because that just uprooting work, that breaking down work, that's merely the prelude to God's new work. That's what this story reminds us of. This ballad of Baruch. That no matter what occurs in this present life, the truth of God and his word remains true. You can't burn it up. You can't toss it into a fire. You can't plaster it anywhere and it suddenly turn untrue. No matter what society says, this book remains true forever. It doesn't matter what people say. Therefore, we can take heart, take courage. We can have hope. That even these times of uprooting, these times of upheaval, they're part of his purposes. They're part of a program that he is affecting to bring about his glorious ends. And we may not be aware of it. We may not be able to perceive it. But it's happening all around us. And the amazing part is God has invited you to be a part of that. That's the story of the gospel. That God has invited degenerate sinners to be a part of his program of grace. That's 
If you believe in Jesus this morning, that is the great story you've been made a part of. No amount of chaos or trouble or defiance or turmoil can make that untrue. God's purposes have remained unshaken and undisturbed since the beginning of time. And they always will be. This great upheaval, this breaking down and uprooting of the church. I think it started a couple years ago. With that little year that we shall not speak of when everything stopped. (laughs) And everyone was forced to wear something on their face. It was a time which I think very clearly something was happening within the church. Something was happening to God's people. I think he's preparing the church. Yes, baby, perhaps tougher days. I'm not out here trying to be a prosperity preacher. If you just believe, things will work out. Actually, I think he's preparing. He's shoring us up for perhaps tougher days. I'm not, a, I'm not a prognosticator. I can't predict the future. But what I do know is it's getting more difficult to be a Christian in the public sphere. Are you going to be ready to make that stand like Baruch and say, this is the truth. And I'm going to declare it. Baruch, he almost cracked under the pressure. The truth of God's words Brings us to the point where we can hold fast to the truth of God's word above all else. He doesn't want you to quit. God doesn't want you to surrender. He wants you to hold on, to seek to him, to seek his truth. This morning, what is God calling you to hold fast to this this morning? Maybe there's something that you can't just seem to ignore and it's almost like acting like blinders and it's robbing you of your joy, of your focus, of your discernment, of everything that you once experienced and enjoyed. And it feels as if God is doing a work that is not very comfortable. God wants you to see that there's a greater work going on. It's a work of planting It's a work of newness. It's a work of glory that he is bringing about. Not us. He's bringing it about. It is God's wisdom and truth being worked out in his proper timing and way. And we, like Baruch, are invited to witness To witness it all. To watch and to wait and to pray and to draw attention to the great work that God's doing. You know, that's what your calling is. You don't have to know everything about the Bible. You don't have to discern the times and be a prophet of the end times. Every single charge that God gave to his disciples before he descended was what? Watch and wait And basically, in Acts chapter 1, he says the same thing. Draw attention to me. Draw attention to me, Jesus Christ. That's what you're invited to do. In times of apparent disaster and distress and upheaval, hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to the one who makes all of these words true. Because he is the true one, the just one, the yes and amen of all of God's promises. In Christ, we find our all. And in Christ, we find our rest. This morning, hold fast to the one who is the word. The word became flesh for you.
Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.